0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today for part two of our Ghost Lights conversation with John Moore. We talk about journalism, politics, but then get right back into the theater. Now, Dan, do the damn thing.
1: we can tell stories about what an asshole Larry Walker is
0: oh my god ladies and gentlemen we are back for part two of the podcast let's just do we dive. Talk. We're, I, hey we're here for it all and you opened this can of worms because I the only thing I enjoyed about Larry Walk, Walker was the way his name was pronounced at the stadium that that pause after Walker yeah
1: yeah is he is he a jerk job <laughs> I, will say, I will say that co- covering the Colorado Rockies was mostly a joy because almost everybody from the Blake Street Bombers that was their era mm-hmm. um, were just so happy to be there. And they're just such, they, they love their sport. And what's typical of most Canadian athletes, especially hockey players, is they have such an appreciation for what the sport has done for their families And they've made sacrifices from the point when they were just kids being sent off to these hockey schools and camps, you know, hundreds of miles away from home. But when they reach great success, like a Wayne Gretzky, they Mm -hmm. they give back to the game for the rest of their lives. You know, Um, I would just say Larry Walker is not typical of most Canadian athletes. (laughs) It's good to know. I can tell you, I, you know, I don't, I have no idea how much, or if, if any of this, if we're even on the record anymore, but, um, but we are, we are absolutely on record. Can I tell you my favorite story about Wayne Gretzky? Yes, you can. You're a couple of hockey guys. You yeah. appreciate that. So totally. it's where you put the black rubber thing in the net, right? <clears throat> so one of the, one of the very first bylines I ever had at the, at the Denver post when I was a clerk, essentially my job was to take phone calls at night when the, High school football games were going on and you would type in like the statistics and things like that but my boss gave me uh, occasional opportunities to get a byline so the nhl was bringing an exhibition game to denver and the ambassador of the sport was wayne gretzky and i landed an interview with wayne gretzky and it was important to the nhl that they get a story in the denver post so that people would come out to this exhibition game and um wayne gretzky was the biggest name in the entire sport and i was so nervous all day long And, but I was told to wait by this phone that he would be calling me at a certain time. He was actually traveling in Cleveland for an exhibition game to promote the sport there. And he was calling me before he was going to the arena. And I'm sitting by the phone. I'm sitting by the phone and the phone doesn't ring. It never rings. And I don't have a number to call him at. So I have to slowly sink in that I've been stood up by Wayne Gretzky, um, and so after a certain point, you know, I think, I think the game was going on. I finally tore myself away from the phone and went to go allow myself to take a bathroom break. And I came back and there was this, there, we, had a, we had a clerk who has gone on to a really strong career in journalism, just not in sports. And <laughs> And she said to me, John, while you were in the bathroom, you got a call. And I said, who, from who? And she said, um, Wayne Ger- Gergensy, Ger- and I went Gretzky and she goes, yeah, that's a weird name, isn't it? And I was just like, Oh my oh. God. I, bl- I blew, he, he, he called when he had the opportunity to call and, and I said, so what did he, she, she goes, well, he said that he's going to, he's going to try back. And I was like, he's not going to call back. The game is like now in the third period. He's in Cleveland, whatever. My shift lasted until 1 a.m. And I am not kidding. Five minutes. It must have been three o'clock in the morning in Cleveland. I was getting ready to leave and the phone rang and I wasn't even expecting it. But it was it was Wayne Gretzky. And he could not have been more apologetic for missing the first phone call. And I could not be more apologetic about the fact that that when he called, I wasn't by the phone. And in his unique Canadian way, he was like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think she knows who I who I am." <laughs> 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 and, and so, and so, I mean, at that time of the morning, we just sat, started talking, and you could tell he was just in his hotel room, just you know, sitting back and winding down at the end of the day. And it was sort of like this conversation is like, "Do you want to just keep talking?" You know. So, I mean, I I talked to to him for almost an hour, and most of the conversation was about his love of the game and why he's loved the game since the moment he was born and how excited he was to be able to bring this sport to a city like Denver which has a population that didn't grow up with a with a just innate love for the game like we had but he he had such child childish enthusiasm for what it could mean for the city of Denver and everything he said came true yeah he was a perfect ambassador a, a wonderful gentleman. He gave me one of the best interviews to this day that I've ever had in my life and I owe him yeah. because when you're just getting started and you're like 22, 23 and you get a cover story where you, your interview with Wayne Gretzky, he's done you a favor. And yeah. I've never, I've never forgot, forgotten that graciousness. That, that, that is an
0: amazing story. I liken, I'm sure I'm way off base, but the Gordon Bombay in The Mighty Ducks, like, him talk, yeah. like the, the intro to that movie, is him skating on a pond with his dad. Yeah. I'm almost positive. Like that's half of Gretzky's story is just in this pond near his house, playing with his dad, learning the intricacies and the proper way to deke in and out left and right, like all of that stuff. Yeah. And, and to, to see that that carried over as it has
1: throughout his career is really. Well, you see that in hockey players all the time, more so than any other sport. And it's so wonderful to see that once they get you know, into the NHL and they've got their millions, but they never get the same kind of millions that like baseball and football players do. Or basketball so players. They become wildly rich, but rich by, ho- by hockey standards. But mm-hmm. I just have so much appreciation for anyone, whether it's, athlete, whether it's athletes or actors or, or, or anyone who maintains that sort of civility and, and appreciation for what it was that got them there right up to the end. You know, okay. it's, it's kind of like the stories you hear about Brian Cranston, you know, um, I've gotten to interview him before, too. And and you can just tell that he's a guy who knows that when he goes onto a TV set or a movie set, that he can he can set the tone of civility for the entire cast and crew. Because yeah. if Brian Cranston's there and he's like, hey, everybody, let's just take a moment and appreciate how incredibly lucky we are to be here. Yeah. And this opportunity that we have to tell people this incredible story that we have, so let's be here on time, and let's let's just have a wonderful experience. And then there's no time for attitudes. There's no time for drama. There's no time for people to um, to muck up the process at all. You know, because yeah. you've got somebody at the at the heart of it who who just appreciates how lucky we all are to be a part of the creative process. And I, Absolutely. I think that that should extend really into every backstage at every theater in America.
0: Uh, it, it should extend to everywhere in America. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you're talking about like taking the lead, the like holding the space for the cast and crew on a specific project like Brian Cranston might do. Um, you talk about civility and stuff like, while I tef- definitely agree with Tom Cruise's recent um, conversation with his crew and cast, yeah. the tenor of which I feel like I don't know <laughs> the conversation that should have been had earlier. You yeah. can still have that that urgency, and I'm not. I'm like, good. Sometimes you need to talk to people that way, yeah. Yeah. especially in this day and age. I I totally get it. I'm yeah. there. I'm here for it. I support it in both ways. But what you're talking about there is like the the understanding of the moment.
1: Yeah.
0: Let's yeah. set the stage from the beginning, so we're not screwing it up for everybody down the road. It takes buy-in.
1: It does, and I, but I, what I love about this, this story is just really whether you're, um, you know, whether you're doing a show like we're gonna be doing this, this spring, hopefully at the Miners Alley playoffs or whether you're on Broadway. I think one thing we all have to look forward to coming out of the pandemic is that the first time you artists get the chance to create again I, I'm going to I'm gonna envy every moment of the creative process of every play and musical that's about to happen, right. because I don't think anybody is ever again going to take for granted just how lucky we are to do that as a calling and to have been denied it for such a long period of time and to be able to kind of come back. And, you know, actually, I, I think I'm hearing echoes of Bob Moore in my ear from when he was talking to you about this very thing. You know, because he's so childlike in his own way, too. And so, you know, and even at, in his, his 70s, I know that when he gets into a room, he's going to be just like Brian Cranston. He's going to be oh. the guy who's just going to be sitting there going, isn't this great? Mm-hmm. Isn't this great? This is what we get to do. You know, we get to tell stories. We're children. We're grownups. We get to play child, ch- children's games.
0: I feel like I've had a weird pandemic artist experience. I've had the good fortune of being able to produce things. To be on stage. I've seen sports. you and you're kilt. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm looking good
1: out there. I'm doing it all. I have to admit, when I was in my golf cart and the um, and the sun was going down, mm-hmm. you, you I don't think you were the original person in
0: that role. You no, know? no, no. It was Jason. I wasn't in it. It was Brian Cusick then Jason. Right. I was big brother on hole five trying to get <laughs> yeah. trying to chip onto the green.
1: Well when I got to when I got to you not being able to chip onto the green I was like I was at such a distance I was like I don't know who that is. No. Yeah. It took me a while. I'm like, Oh, that's Sam. That's of course Sam. <laughs> Sam. Yeah. I what, was, that was me. So, so one thing you, you can't possibly know about me is that I was a golf caddy throughout high school and I went to college on a golf caddy scholarship. So, um, that so we're going golfing. So no, that doesn't mean I'm a good golfer. It means I can tell you, you can I, get a I, scholarship I, as a caddy. What's that? You can get a scholarship as a caddy. The largest, the largest privately funded scholarship in America is called the Evans Scholarship. There are chapter, there are chapter houses for men and women throughout the country, uh, including the University of Colorado at Boulder where I went to school. And if you work as a caddy uh, for a couple of summers and you're in the top quarter of your class and you have financial need, you too can qualify for a full ride college scholarship. The only thing I, they give you a house to live in. All I had to pay for was books and, and some house fees. And um, and I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity. So I lived, I sort of lived the Danny Noonan life in Jack.
0: Nice. No, 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 no.
1: <laughs> Well, that
0: made me apply for that scholarship.
1: Well, I'm telling you, the, the, the putt that Danny Noonan sinks, uh, you know, the scholarship he's walking away from is the Evans scholarship, even if yep. I don't use it by name. All right, we oh, talked no. about sports, who's drinking? Um, I'm dry right now. All I've got is ice,
0: but there's still some bourbon around there. So I'll, 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 I'll suck on that. Mm, that's good stuff. Anyway, we are going to go golfing. You don't have to be good. Cause I'm terrible at it. Okay. Dan is much better than me. We'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll get like six beers each and we'll go golfing. We'll Let's make do it. Thing. All right. Um, mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I wanted to stick around with you is one. First of all, let me just say that first hour, it was so great because I had so many ideas come to me while you were talking, and so I really appreciate where you were going with that. And I do want to use everything that we used after I said, "Welcome back to part two of the John Moore podcast." Where do you think journalism sits right now? Not just in Colorado, but in America. It's a big question. I understand, so feel free to take your time. Um, I I mentioned at the beginning of my TED talk on Monday. Of how vastly different the world has changed around me doing my podcast in the last two that I've done, they were all before January sixth. They all came out before then, and they would have been vastly different. Yes, I talked about representation and with Lois, um, but it seems now that I don't know. There's enough people screaming at the um, screaming um, on a podcast or on YouTube and in their own their own newspapers about some type of thing that people should be scared of. And I'll shut up journalism. No, let's, let's make it a
1: conversation. Um, Absolutely. My, my question is in answering your question is, there's two different answers do you. Are you talking about journalism in general or do you wanna be specific about arts journalism?
0: Let's, let's talk about, uh, I would say journalism in general. I mean, I'm gonna definitely dovetail back into theater near the end of this because Okay. Make me
1: happier <laughs> well the, the short answer is that journalism is in the greatest crisis that it's been in probably ever um, I don't I don't think we can ever compare a time when the the sitting president of the United States has actively engaged for now more than six years uh, on an ongoing a- a- attack against the credibility of the constitutionally protected free and independent responsible media. Mm-hmm. I can get on a soapbox that's 40 feet high to talk about how reprehensible it is that, that journalists who risk their lives to not only tell stories uh, around the country that we desperately, or around the world that we desperately need to know, but stories in our own hometown. Uh, you never know what's not being reported and you won't be surprised when I tell you that I think that journalism is one of the noblest professions that you can have. Because when, when we start to, lo- if we lose the Denver Post, you know the Denver Gazette is now starting up, that's important. But um, if we ever got to a point where, where we could actually be a zero newspaper town, as far as a daily newspaper town, then that leaves all of the bad guys free to do whatever they wanna do with very little attention and that's what breeds cynicism. That's what breeds corruption is the lack of a, of, a, of a watchdog. And I'm not comparing what I do, having a career in sports and, and arts to the kind of journalism that I'm talking about right now. But it is so uh, infuriating to me that we live in a time when we have a president who doesn't like what the news is. So he created a brand called Fake News to be able to throw aspersions at anything that doesn't reflect on him positively. Um, at first, we thought it was a joke. We, we had faith in people's critical thinking. We had faith in people's ability to see through the bullshit and to be able to kind of go, he's lying to you. He's lying to you. But Sam, you fast forward to what we've witnessed over the past month, and you realize what the, the just the, the damage that's done in our wake when you've had somebody who has been indoctrinating people into, ironically enough, the fakest of news. You know, going back to Pizzagate and the whole child slavery nonsense, but it's clear that our public education system has failed and people are vulnerable to hearing complete and utter fantasies and believing that they're true, and now that we know that they can be radicalized and they can act on it, and mm-hmm. um, and and the the poor media is is dying um, in its midst, and mm-hmm. and I th- I think it I think the thing that probably makes me the maddest about it at all is that Donald Trump takes some credit for the demise of the mainstream media, and we could talk for hours about what really has happened to the media in the past fifteen years. I can. I referenced this earlier in the podcast about how in the glory days of the Denver post, which I would put right before the banking crisis in about 2006, you know, our Sunday, our Sunday edition was two inches thick. You know, our circulation on Sunday was close to uh, 800,000 on any given Sunday. And, Mm -hmm. and now um, the demise of the Rocky mountain news was one of the worst things that could have happened to the city of Denver because Uh, You lost that competition, you also had the surviving paper in the absence of that competition suddenly needing to charge people what it really costs to deliver a local newspaper to your doorstep. Um, You know, we benefited for 20 years uh, on the death struggle between Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. Uh, for survival, because it meant that they charged their readers five dollars a year to get the paper delivered on their doorstep seven days a week, mm. and uh, people got used to paying five dollars for the news. They they also had, they also had twenty years of being able to read everything on the internet for free, and the grave critical mistake uh, of that strategy was that it, it it taught people that information gathering is, is free and that it should remain free, um, without the full picture of the fact that. All of the people who are producing that news, you know, have mortgages and they've got children with disabilities and they've got kids in college and we, you know, it costs money. It does cost money. Mm-hmm. But once you've trained people that information should be free, um, they're not going to pay for it. And so now we've got all of these wonderful startup organizations um, like Denver, right? Like the Colorado sun um, there's, there are niche publications covering politics, covering education, Chalkbeat, some of these others um, that are some, we're, we're actually living in an era of some of the, of the, the best journalism that I've read in my life. And the problem is, is that very few people are seeing it because most of it has a paywall around it because otherwise it wouldn't get be getting produced. Yeah. But the, 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 the media hasn't fallen by the wayside because of Donald Trump. Um, but the end result is the same. We are a dangerously underinformed people and um, the events of the past uh, month have have shown just how dangerous going forward is going to continue to be if people don't suddenly have a come to Jesus moment and realize that information, good, credible, solid information is worth paying for. And then on the other side of that whole argument is the fact that the, the media has fed into its own demise, by the the most recent trend in the last 10 or 15 years that have allowed media empires to form with with a political agenda. Yeah. We we had we had years and years to be able to say we're independent. We you know, we don't take a political stand. But now, you know, we know that there are entire television networks that have their own politics. We, there are newspapers that have their own politics. It's more it's it's harder and harder to argue to the general public that All the media is principled and independent because we're not, Mm -hmm. but we have to become savvy. We have to become critical thinkers and we have to be able to look at um, different media outlets as saying, this is valuable information to me. Fox News might be its own thing. MSNBC might be its own thing. They could both be argued as, as, as being potentially propaganda outlets because they only foster one political ideology. But, the, but what we need to protect are those newspapers that still endeavor to tell both sides of the story. Because if we, if we lose another newspaper, we're in big trouble. Yeah, I'm just going to stop talking because I'll, I'll keep going.
0: No, I, I, thank you so much. I mean, I, I, I agree with a, a, everything you've said. Uh, one of the things, that, so while you were talking there near the end, I, I, got, I got a flash of a specific moment in the movie Vice with uh, Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. where he bumps into Roger Ailes at the beginning, like the foundation of the building of Fox and how that was the scariest part of that entire movie for me. Mm-hmm. And, and then we start talking about like MSNBC where that's predominantly where I'm going to listen to, but I can see how the divisive rhetoric from both outlets has contributed to this downfall.
1: Well, as as unpleasant as it is, I have to decide to either watch a little bit of both or neither Mm. because I, I wear my politics on my sleeve as a, as a person, hopefully not as a journalist, but you know, I can't listen to MSNBC for three hours. I can't, I can't listen to Fox news for three hours. You know, people say, well, what do you, what do you actually tune to? I say, well, CNN after midnight is great because that's when they switch to their international desk where they actually still tell the news rather than just having a talking head and you give Chris Cuomo or Don Lemon or Anderson Cooper their hour to just, to just hammer home one side of the day's news story. And it's a, it's like a bludgeoning and I'm on that side and I can't listen to it. I, you know, I, I actually, I, I, I like Al Jazeera. People just oh, yeah. hear that and they freak out because they just have their, their preconceptions. But if you're, if you're actually looking for unbiased journalism about what's going on in America, sadly, you kind of have to go outside of the United States to get it. Right, nowadays, absolutely. And
0: that, used, that never used to be the case. Yeah. Like I, I, I wanted, like, I never had the good fortune to sit there and, like, listen to Walter Cronkite. Yeah. But every documentary about something happened during his heyday on the mic in front of the camera to read, well, reread articles by Carl Bernstein, during, during Watergate, you got, I, I got a very different sense of America during those times that I don't, that while they were talking about specific things that were getting to the meat of the issue. And there were things that were happening that may have affected me and my nationality that was not getting covered. That's never been covered. And there's other people who can say the exact same thing. There was still some objective quality that I had grown
1: accustomed to believing existed. Right. Well, you make an an outstanding point. It's relevant to the local media today because I think if you watched Walter Cronkite do the evening news for, I don't know how many years he did it, 30 years, um, you trusted Uncle Walter to tell you the truth of what was going on in Vietnam or whatever. But I would defy anybody to tell me that they know when he went into a voting booth and closed the curtain who he was voting for. And that was such an essential principle of journalism. And I can't believe now we have to talk about that. that that's a, that's a bygone era. Yeah. I mean, the comparable answer to that is, um, just on nine news the other night where, um, Kyle Clark is, uh, a wonderful journalist and he's sort of putting in his time now to become Denver's kind of Walter Cronkite, if he decides he wants to do it for 20 more years. But the problem is, is that just the other night when they were talking about the rebellion, he was leading the 10 o'clock newscast and then they cut to a recorded editorial that Kyle Clark had written about the umbrage he had taken at the storming of the Capitol. And then they go back to Kyle Clark for the continuation of the day's news. and, And that's becoming, that's the CNN problem. That's what CNN has wrought on us by just, by stopping the reporting of the news and turning everybody into a person with an opinion you know, now we've got Kyle Clark on the record knowing exactly how he thinks about certain political issues. And again, I'm, I, I agree with everything that he says, but my heart sinks every time he editorializes on the news because there goes the objectivity. Anybody who's looking for a vulnerability or an excuse to just, to just disregard Nine News' coverage of, of the day's events, has been handed it to them by a silver platter by saying, "Well, see, he's on, he's on the other side. Uh, you know, he's clearly biased." Mm. And the fact is, he's, you know, he is. Yeah. And that that's a, that's a problem. I just, I, I, I want to go back to the days when, before CNN had, when it had its second channel, and that they now use it to play forensic files 24 hours a day. You know, <laughs> I, I feel like it wasn't that long ago when it was the day's news in 30 minutes. You know, they, yeah. just, they just gave you the news. It was like watching the news every 30 minutes, 24 hours a day. It didn't matter what time you tuned in. You knew that you could get the news. And that's what we're not doing anymore on a national basis. Is just reporting. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I don't need to tune in to Don Lemon and watch him put together a panel of people who are just going to slam Donald Trump for an hour. Because I can be sitting there going, right on, right on, right on. But what, what good is that actually doing me? Yeah. What, it, what, it, what
0: it's doing is it's inflaming. Yeah, like we're already triggered one way or another. And depending on who we turn to for our news, quote unquote, yeah. it's either confirming everything that we feel so that we just feel insulated. And then thus the our rage is righteous. And then and because we felt we, we move that way, we ignore the other side completely and we've politicized everything. And if you tune in to like learn what the other side is thinking, you've already been bamboozled so much that you just think they're lying.
1: Yeah. And to bring this back to a theater context, you know, that's an argument that we have within the theater community as well with, with uh, journalists and playwrights. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I can't tell you how many playwrights I've interviewed who have done a socially significant play about one issue or another. And I, I tend to have the same the same response as an audience member when I feel like the playwright is uh, has written a polemic and whether it's about immigration or any other issue where I'm gonna be subjected for an hour and a half of some, some fictionalized tale of what we might be seeing on the news where it's clear from the very first monologue where this playwright stands and then we're just gonna be subjected to it for an hour and a half and they don't feel any need to be even handed or to even present to you the nuance of the issue. Why is it that there are people who feel like it's okay to put kids in cages? Cause I'm actually more interested to know that because that's what I don't get. Yeah. An hour and a half of how horrible it is for a family to lose their kid who's in a cage. I'm already there. I am with you hundred percent. So I'm not going to grow or, or, or change by that experience by just being fed a story that I already intrinsically connect to, and I and it's an interesting subject because I've talked to many many playwrights who say it's 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 not my job to be a journalist. It's not my job to be to be even. Mm-hmm. I've got something to say, and the stage is my place to say it. And they're and they're right. Um, as a theater goer, I invariably feel like whatever they come up with is less interesting to watch. And that's one of the things I kept in mind when you kindly mentioned my play Waiting for Obama. It was important that the, that, that not everybody in that play had the same viewpoints because how interesting is that when everybody's on the same page, whether it's your page or not. Totally. When
0: we're talking about theater, I'm definitely gonna steer us there now like the plays that last if they're politically charged for lack of a better descriptor is the, are the ones that don't uh, uh, and correct me if, if you disagree um, that don't hammer a specific issue from a specific slant. If it's, if it's dealt in a dealt with in a way, like black elk speaks is one of those plays that while it's told specifically from, Native Americans perspective and their story and notations from their, their trials. It never felt like to me while reading it and being a part of it that I was being preached to from the Mount.
1: It's a good question. I am going to give you a compromised answer because okay. I would defer to the, to the writing um, mm-hmm. because I think most polemic plays, I wouldn't necessarily say are inherently well-written. Plays to begin with, but there are there are some of the great works of art, and um, you know Larry Kramer's *The Normal Heart* is a is a fantastic example of that. Where he, if he were part of, if he were still alive and part of this conversation, he would zoom slap me right now for even insinuating that he has to be fair. Um, *The Normal Heart* is one of the greatest plays ever written. And it really just excoriates the, the, the government, the gay community, everybody who had a hand in allowing the AIDS crisis to become the national tragedy that it did is in the crosshairs of this play. Um, and it's not, it's not fair and it's not even handed. And it's the only time I've ever sat in a Broadway theater um, where I saw a mid-show standing ovation when Ellen Barkin who plays a polio stricken doctor in a wheelchair just lets loose on the hypocrisy of the government and the inaction by the medical community to respond mm-hmm. to the AIDS crisis. And it's just so cathartic. And, and we all stood up and applauded a monologue in the middle of a play. And apparently that wasn't all that unusual. And then after the play was over, it was just a Wednesday matinee. Mm-hmm. And I walk out into the lobby and there's Larry Kramer at like 80 or whatever, however old it was, handing out pamphlets saying the age crisis isn't over. This is why you, you know, you need to, you still need to care about this 30 year old play that we just walked out of. Um, that great writing trumps everything else. Hmm. So, um, you know, I think part of, you know, whatever I would be self-critical of my own play is that when you try too hard to be too fair to both sides eventually people want you to take a side mm. and that's maybe one reason why in the final version of my play essentially everyone ends up dead in a bloody in a bloody heap i'm like i took the advice to heart when they said you've got to have a big ending so yeah. um
0: definitely you didn't you didn't you didn't chick it out there at the end
1: <laughs> I had to get to that point though um yeah this will mean nothing to almost everybody who's listened to play cuz not very many people could have possibly ever seen this play but um but at first you know, of course, it's a play about guns. You know, it's like the whole checkoff thing. If there's a gun in play, eventually you better use it or else it better not be one. So, but in, but I had three different, we took three different endings of my play to New York for the Fringe Festival. And we, and I just had so much confidence in the actors that I just said, well, let's do all three. You know, we had six performances. So, one performance we did this ending and the next performance we did another one and they were fine with rolling with those punches. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was one, one version where nobody ends up dead and then there's one version where a couple of people end up dead. And um, to, 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 to give this way, um, when we wrote the play, it was specifically set for its time. So it was set in the final months of the Obama presidency. And the idea was if he's gonna go around the country knocking on doors and taking everybody's guns, he better hurry up because his term is gonna be over in November. Yeah. And so in one version of the play, um, we were doing it as our rehearsal. We had to show it to the staff and, um, we did the version where Obama ends up dead. And we were told that that's actually a federal crime. You can't, you can't show harm coming to a sitting president in a theatrical production. Um, you can show like You know i could have had like richard nixon dying because he's a former president but as long as barack obama was president we could not show the ending of the play where he gets where he gets shot is
0: that why Um, kathy griffin got so much heat for cutting off trump's
1: head um well (laughs) i don't think that's the only reason oh Um, but it was referred it was it was definitely referred to Um, okay yeah wow i would not have known that well we certainly didn't know it until we went to new york
0: the more you know. Yeah, exactly. A couple more questions before we bounce. One big one and then one fun.
1: Good. Okay.
0: What do you think, because here's my, this is where the question's coming from. I don't feel like I've got a objective, critical eye when it comes to theater in Colorado that much anymore. Juliet Whitman, very, very good. I respect her. I have a great deal of respect. I don't, I don't see her reporting enough, and she would be, at, if I had to put a list in order of criticism, she'd be at the top of it right now. So my question to you is, does Colorado theater miss an objective critical eye? And if so, how does that come back, if at all?
1: The answer is emphatically yes. Um, I didn't, maybe I knew it at the time, but I didn't acknowledge it, but mm-hmm. really from the time the Rocky Mountain News folded in 2008, I want to say, mm-hmm. um, and Lisa Bornstein left her position as the chief theater critic at the Rocky Mountain News, that left me as the last surviving salaried, full-time journalist exclusively mm-hmm. dedicated to do, covering theater and nothing but theater. Mm-hmm. and. And I got lucky in the fact that the Denver Center created a position for me where even though I wasn't a critic, I have spent the last seven years as a journalist covering the Colorado theater community as my full-time job, just not as a reviewer. Mm -hmm. And in that time, I've eaten a lot of knuckles, Sam, as somebody who abdicated as a reviewer and I got my life back and one easy way to find out how a community feels about you is to just quit or die. Because, and I, and I almost did both um, after I left. Yeah. After I left the post, but suddenly it was very odd to go from being the most misunderstood person in Denver to being somebody people actually heaped, you know, um, love. Even saying it, it's hard to say my my way. Um, I think people appreciated the work ethic. They appreciated the regularity. They appreciated the fact that because I was dedicated to it full-time, I I, I reviewed at least 160 plays a year in the biggest newspaper in the state. I made a point of covering theater all over the state of Colorado. So um, I think at the end of any given year, I might've reviewed as many as 60 different theater companies during that time. And after a while, you put in that kind of time and miles on your car, people begin to appreciate your work ethic. And no matter what else they thought about my reviews, I think that they started to recognize that that was never gonna come again. Even if there were a full-time salaried theater journalist, uh, that, that kind of insanity, that was, an in, that was impossible for me to sustain. But I did it for 12 years then as you already know you know part of the whole reason the Denver Post was offering buyouts and one of the reasons I left is they were offering severance packages so that they could eliminate positions and i knew that by taking my very you know kind and generous severance package that whoever got saddled with theater wasn't going to be doing it full time they were going to be we've had nothing but slashes since then you know they gave it to lisa kennedy so she became the film slash theater critic and if you can't do both of those beats and, and, and go see 160 theater shows a year. And, and Lisa, it took a toll and then she took a buyout and then they gave it to Joanne Ostro and then Joanne Ostro became the TV slash theater slash film writer at the Denver Post. And then that took its toll on her and then she took a buyout and left. Earlier in this podcast, I mentioned that when I took the job, there were 17 full-time arts and culture writers and features writers at the Denver Post. Today there's one. His name is John Wenzel and I don't know how he does it. And he does some brilliant pieces, but he's covering literally everything. So now when theater resumes again and people need to get the attention of the Denver Post, you know, who? what number do you call? Like what email do you send it to? It's not for lack of interest. It's because it's been gutted and decimated by a hedge fund that has been picking its bones to the marrow and, and so where does that lead the theater community? It leaves the theater community with a lot of well-intentioned blogger critics who really want to promote and pass the word about shows that are going on. so they're never going to say a negative thing. There is also freelance critics, such as some of the people that I've mentioned, like Elisa Kennedy or a Juliet Whitman. But Juliet's nearing, nearing 80. you know, she was able to do what she did at Westward for all those years. Yeah. Um, as a freelancer, as somebody who contributed one or two stories a week because she was a professor at the University of Colorado. Um, when, when the pandemic ends, you know, what's the landscape going to be like? Is Westward even going to have a place for theater criticism? Is, you know, the Denver Post, we just don't know. But the the days where the person who's sitting in that theater can add the context to a review where you have the confidence of knowing that that I had seen every other play this theater company's done, every other show Sam Gilstrap's been in, and I've got the authority to be able to have that be part of my review, mm-hmm. um, it's gone. And the economics of the newspaper industry being what they are, my answer to your question is, no, it's not coming back. There's not, there's, I don't see an economic formula where there's enough appreciation for the media and enough uh advertising support and a beefed up staff the way that we've seen you know that that's just been decimated at the Denver Post to get to the point where they get to the point where they're like okay there's movies there's tv there's live music and then somewhere down near dance and opera is live theater and the idea of asking that some newspaper right now is going to commit a salary with benefits to somebody to do what I had the privilege to do for twelve years—it just—it just doesn't commute, compute. So mm-hmm. I'm living in a world put where I'm considering—I'm considering that era of my life to now be over because the, the Denver Center eliminated my position because of COVID, mm-hmm. and I'm transitioning now into becoming some sort of a hybrid in the new world where. There are no journalism jobs for people like me left. So we ha- we are in a position where we have to sort of scratch out our own livings the way you artists have been doing it for centuries. And that means we are now part of the gig economy. And we I'm, I'm out there, uh, you know, looking for contracts for not just probably not very much from performing arts organizations because they don't have a lot of income. But there will always be a potential freelance gig at a place like the Denver Gazette or the Denver Post, hopefully, where they'll throw you a couple of dollars to be able to write one story. Mm-hmm. But how do you turn that into a living is you've got to get contracts. You've got to get organizations who are who want to hire a journalist to write a story committing to a certain amount of time. And the chances of that happening within the performing arts world are very small. So now I'm considering my only way forward as a journalist is to find uh, contracts with companies that need content for their website or they need a book written or they need, um, but they need, what, they need their story to be told because there is no more Denver Post to tell their story. So the, the message I'm getting out there to the entire world is you still have a story to tell, but you have to tell your own story and you have to acknowledge that in this day and age, you are all your own distribution. You have your Facebook, you've got your, your Instagram, you've got your email list, which hopefully is robust and filled with hundreds of people. But we live in a world now where you shouldn't be focusing so much on trying to get a feature in the Denver Post because it's like, you know, a needle in a haystack. So now you've got to, you know, you've got to go out and hire a writer to write that story to give it back to you so that you can put it on your website then you can send out an email to to your distribution list and make sure at least the people who already care the most about your organization read the story that you're trying to get out there and hope that they share it with people and get the word out that way because criticism is dead i mean it's just dead it's not it's not legitimate it's not consistent the 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 bloggers are too kind you know it's all sunshine and unicorns. Everything is the best show you've ever seen. Nobody has any incentive, Sam, to be mm. tough. Um, because honestly, you know, in the old days when they had the Huffington Post, um, they, they had uh, Deb Flomberg, who was the president of the Colorado Theater Guild for a while. She was the contributing writer. And when, one of the stories that she told me that just stunned me was she would write reviews and features for the Huffington Post Denver. And the only way she got paid is if her story hit a certain number of hits uh, and opens. And if it didn't reach that level, then she did it for free. And if she did hit like 20,000 hits or something like that, something ridiculous, she might get a couple of pennies. And if you just think about the incentive there is, if you're just, if all you have is a link to get your story out there, to get the number of hits that you need in order to get paid, you know, think about what a pan does of a show at the catamounts to Mm -hmm. the likelihood that people are going to share that story. They'll be like, you know, I wrote three reviews a week for all those years. It's, you know, two of them might be positive and one of them might've been a little tougher. People are like, well, we're certainly not going to share the, the, the tough one. Um, Mm -hmm. but now an independent journalist only has a prayer of getting paid if it gets shared and liked and forwarded along. So, whether it's subconscious or not, these kinds of writers go in predisposed to liking something because they're gonna want people, you know, it's it's the only way people are gonna read their story and even have a prayer of getting paid. So it's all messy, it's all gray. Um, I wish I had a better parting thought than the fact that there'll be some sort of rising from the ashes of of legitimate theater journalism in Colorado, but the way it looks right now, I don't see it.
0: I, I, I would tend to agree with you. I, I think one of the things, and, and first let me say the reason why I feel this way is because when I came into the game, I, I hated so much about me that here's something, theater, acting, that I was good at, that I needed to be told I was good at it. And like even now remembering that boy that got out of college, like, it get, gets me choked up. Like, I, I, sure. I freaking needed it. And then I, it wasn't until I got much older. I mean, it's, let's see, I graduated college in 2007 and immediately started work right. as an actor. And i was very fortunate, very fortunate run up until my 30s. So I was like 27, 26. No, okay. I graduated college when I was 25. So I had, I had the, up until like I was 27, 28, before I stopped working every single month, to really start taking lessons because um, like you said in college it was academic but there was a lot of stuff that I was being um, spoon-fed by bits and pieces without full immersion and then I got out of that and I started taking lessons um, with Sheila Ivy Traster everyone hears her name on this podcast and she's been a guest and she's freaking awesome but one of the things that she was teaching me more than acting out, out of all of that was getting comfortable with my mistakes and then to get better from it. And there, but there was still a period of time. I mean, like I've, I've talked about how I gave Len Mateo shit because I thought I knew more than him in a specific moment. Cause I read that play a hundred times when I was in college, I know what I'm doing here. And then I finally relented on the last night before we opened mm-hmm. and it opened up this whole new world in terms of choices and stuff like that. I'm like, oh shit. So it was a a long period of time in my life and there are moments even now where I struggle to take in a note from the the perspective of constructive feedback Mm -hmm. that I feel there are a lot of people that not just getting into theater and that's not something I just see here. It's something that I feel a lot of us in a lot of walks of life encounter where we do not want to be told how to do a thing because we've been told we've been
1: special for so long. There's another sports equivalent to that, Sam. Yeah. You know, it's so That's funny right. you mention that because when you're, you know, if you're in sports, you're 25, you're in the prime of your life, and you should be as good as you're ever going to get, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be a slow decline, but, yeah. but you know, the arts, it's craft. It's it's um, it, it's it makes sense that you would graduate and be ready to hit the ground running and decide that you are ready to go and and that and, and that. You you know, just let me loose, and it's got to be hard at, to know at that age that you know actually with ten more years of this you're going to be better, and with ten more years of that you're going to be better, and with ten more years of that you're going to be better, mm-hmm. because you just want to believe, you know, what you know what you know is enough to make you great. Yeah. At, at at first, and that's a that's a humbling experience. It's not it's not unlike writing as as well. You know, I look back, I look back at some of the things that I wrote in 2001 and I, I'm glad that there's, that the internet is a graveyard. You know, I'm glad that some of the stuff that I wrote in those early years will never be seen again. I also lament the fact that some of the things I'm proud of probably don't really exist anymore either. Like, like a great performance in that you've made on stage, you know, you know, it, it still exists in your head. Yeah. You've got it. But, um, mm-hmm. but uh that that's a that's a hard life lesson, but I, I I appreciate where your your realization, and in the in the evolution of that story, because it does make it much more likely that everything you do has such cumulative impact on the next thing that you do, and the next thing that you do, the next thing you do, and you know it's easy for me as an outsider to be able to go to the twenty five year old Sam and say, Sam, you're still you're still clay, yeah, you're still clay, you're you're not all that yet. But mm-hmm. you're on the but you're on the road, you know, and I could have the benefit of being able to say I know where I, I know where you're going to be in ten years, Yeah. you know. But it's got to be terribly frustrating to be 25 and to be told, wait a minute, yeah. you're, you're telling me I'm not all that.
0: Mm-hmm. F- There's Still you know? more work to be done.
1: <laughs> I've done my work, goddamn it. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I talk I talk about I was following a formula that I had constructed in my brain as yeah. a as a kid, and my. And my life of coming up as a single, a product of a single mother whose father was incarcerated, and then, you know, so much more stuff to go to learn as I got older and became a man. Yeah. And uh, all that stuff aside, I was programming myself to follow a specific formula, which is why reading romance novels was a terrible idea. <laughs> I don't know why I got into that.
1: But no, reading I got it. Is bad reading. Reading is good. No matter if, yeah. that's, if that's what's going to get you reading, then read. Ro- romance novels and graphic novels. And hey, Stacey, Stacey Abrams writes ro- romance novels. Quite a town. Quite, quite successfully. Yeah, she's very proud of it. She doesn't. That's not a big secret. Well, then I'm going to start reading Stacey Abrams
0: romance novels. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so uh, adhering to this formula, and then to find out, so you accomplished part B of your formula there was still a C and a D, there's the rest of this alphabet here to go. True. And then, I I mean, once you, and like I said, yes, I made certain acceptances, but every once in a while I'm hit with something brand new that I never considered before that is definitely a part of the journey that makes me push back. And I fear or feel that, I mean, we as, as as, as humanity as a whole, We need to get comfortable with that idea. yeah. And maybe that means we go back in time a little bit to look at that stuff that we thought is dead and buried to teach us how to better process part F and H.
1: What's funny about that is like, I'm the furthest thing from an acting teacher or coach. But I imagine if you ever walked into a creative experience and you use that word formula, you know, what's the first thing a, a teacher would disabuse you from in the arts is that there's, that there's a formula for anything a for you, you, know, the word formula inherently implies um, there's only one way to do it, you yeah. know, and to, uh, to, to disabuse you of the idea that any anything has to be done a certain way. was, is to your benefit.
0: Absolutely. Um, before we get going here, one of the questions that I wrote down that you sparked you sparked when talking and our part one was your independent music reviewing, or mm-hmm. at least patronage. Give me your top five indie venues in Denver uh, of all time. They can be closed now.
1: Okay, of all time. Yeah, of all time. Um, well, this is this is totally fun for me, um, and I also I've probably forgotten more than I've than I remember. But the Fifteenth Street Tavern was. Um, was great. The um I would put the uh um the the lion's lair on that list. Um it's there's a great story in the Denver Post about how close it is teetering on the edge of extinction. Um but a uh, block for me. So many classic uh sets that have taken place there. I have a very soft spot in my heart for the high dive um for many years when I was uh Running the UMS with my good friend Ricardo Baca, um, the High Dive was sort of a nerve center of the local music scene. Um, first time I saw S- Sonic Youth was at the the Gothic, so I would definitely put that on my list. Oh, yeah. And um, there was in the early days there was a place called Twenty Three Parish where I saw Nirvana play in the in in the basement venue of there was a main there was a main place for bands upstairs, but for the tiny bands. They would put them in the basement, and I got to see Nirvana there at Twenty Three Parish.
0: Oh my God, that's amazing!
1: Yeah, there's there's more, but it's funny. I, you know, once I started into my life, I, I go full bore into whatever life I'm living at any given time, and mm-hmm. um, and I haven't uh, had, had nearly the time with the local music scene as I as I did in my previous life because I dove so headfirst into the theater world.
0: Nice. Did you ever partake of the satire lounge? I hear that's where the Smother Brothers got their start.
1: Um I did not know that, but yeah. uh, small world stories for uh, uh, after I left the Denver Post, I got it into my head that I was going to do a thing called the um, Denver Sonnets Project. I put out word to the entire community. maybe you were a part of it where i, I just said, um, you you are going to take like flip cameras or cell phones, or whatever, and we're gonna record." all 153 sonnets and I'm gonna put them all in on one channel. Um and here's the Google Doc. It's completely democratic. You know, just pick your sonnet first come, first serve. And to get people going, I started being their cinematographer and started report recording a couple of them just to give people their the, you know, just some encouragement to get started. But it turned out most most people just kind of wanted to do the sonnet and leave the the, all the production work to me. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was too, it was too big. I, you know, I think we got 40 of them done and launched, but my aforementioned good friend, John Lynch was in town and, uh, he picked us on it and, um, we walked in and we, we recorded it in the middle of the, of a set at uh, the satire lounge. And I can send you that link cause it's on YouTube right now. Oh, do
0: that i would love to watch that
1: the entire thing is him he's out of town and he's missing his his wife and they are exchanging uh dialogue through text messaging and it's just and while the band is playing in the background and that's it, really cool. it's very diy i did them all mostly with flip cameras um the intention was not for me to be the filmmaker because i'm not one but uh but we got some interesting stuff. Jim Hunt did a gorgeous sonnet from Denver International Airport and Maggie Stacy, if you know her, yes, created yeah. a miniature film. We had a, another great actress from Denver who was a uh, teaching artist. I'm going to get the country wrong, but she was teaching English in Central America somewhere. And she had them, she worked with them and recorded a sonnet. It was really a lovely project. We just never finished it.
0: Yeah. I, uh, if I'm not mistaken, John Carroll Lynch was on the Drew Carey show. He played his brother, right?
1: He was. He was Drew Carey's cross-dressing brother.
0: Yeah, that was that was like I'm gonna I'm gonna nerd out over that. I, I love that show for many reasons. One being <laughs> particular that Drew was a large, portly man and the star of the show, and that was something go. new for me. Yeah, I'm a I'm a portly gentleman.
1: Hey, uh, I, you weren't you weren't when I was walking into the YMCA at each 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 day and uh but no i mean you know i've learned so much from john lynch and if he were part of this conversation right now and i'm he would do a he would do a podcast with you just for the asking um but he, so i'm gonna ask him <laughs> okay okay um but yeah. he, um he's somebody who taught me really early on that he's never taken his next job for granted he's always accepted any role with incredible humility and with the understanding, unless proven otherwise, that this is the last job he's ever going to get. And I've, I've had the good fortune of visiting him and his wife on various um, sets around the country for the work that they do. And, and to see him in that action, it's sort of like going back to the Brian Cranston story. It's being able to see him just, just treat people with so much respect for the work that they're doing, and with mm-hmm. so much civility amongst each other, that I get the I get the feeling that the more success that that many performers have, you would think that they would become difficult, and I'm sure that that's true of a lot of people. But I the the more celebrities that I've gotten to interview, I have found that the ones who have real staying power are the ones who the the more successful they get, the more humble they get, mm-hmm. and they appreciate that that how fleeting this whole thing can be and john is definitely in that class and he's he's a great role model
0: i would uh i would definitely agree with you i feel like one of the one of the traits to being success in whatever thing whatever you pursue is the ability to be kind and to be humble and to not act like you've been there before yeah it's and that's i mean there are you i mean obviously as a for me personally as a man i've definitely got my Ups and downs with that mindset, as I've talked about on this podcast. But I came up being a man that loves sports. And I always felt like there was somebody younger behind me who wants my job. And they'll take it away from me at any time if I give them that opportunity. And to the fact that I was able to have the career that I've had up to this point this far, while I don't think it's gone, while it's over by any stretch of the imagination, I've said time and again, we are coming back. It will be different, but we are coming back. this is the best damn job in the world and i like the last time I was on stage i was i I'm back there looking waiting for my entrance and yeah. just going like here it comes best damn job in the world high five have yeah. high, high five the star of the show, and I go out there and I take my spot like those yeah. are like it is it's yeah. it's it's just that beautiful and so it makes sense
1: well if i if I could offer any advice to you and I'm, I'm glad that the podcast is back and i I don't think that this pandemic is anywhere close to being over, unfortunately, but I do think you again are in a unique position during this interim to use this forum to keep pumping out podcasts because just the connection that it brings to be able to hear somebody else's voice. And maybe you recognize that person, maybe you don't, Um, but just people talking about the art and people telling their stories and doing all that stuff. It's just a respite from the isolation that we're all feeling and it's it's a separate identity to your acting identity, but you're in a unique position to be that person because you have put in all the work to get this podcast started and going. That I don't know if you fully appreciate just the value of of just throwing a link out into the ether to give people a chance to to check in with somebody they may they may know from the stage or from their personal lives, and I I, I don't know how much free time you have with all of your various jobs and things, but uh, it's, it's a valuable service to, to, to be doing this.
0: Well, I got, uh, I just got rejected for a show. So I've got all the time in the world and I very much intend to keep the podcast going. Hey,
1: whatever that show is, it's probably not happening anyway. So I wouldn't take it too personally. Well, No, they're, they're
0: going to make it happen. I know that. I know, I know the I know the team involved and I, and I can't wait to see what that production looks like. Um, with that being said, John, what is that ghost light you wish was left on for you when you got started? Just in general,
1: um, I feel like I've spent most of this podcast is sort of like living in the past and talking about my role as a critic, um, which really is part of my past. But in thinking about that question, um, ghost light, I for for me is as I wish if I have any legacy at all, you know, a that it's the Denver Actors Fund. That the, you know, the example that we've tried to set just today, we went over $700,000 in the amount of assistance that we've been able to give to Colorado theater artists in need. And if hopefully if we've inspired anything in, in anyone, it's this need to be kind to each other and um, to get over your preconceptions. You know, if I were to look back to like my very first few frantic months as a theater critic and just realizing the mountain that this theater community was gonna force me to scale before I felt any kind of acceptance whatsoever and look at it now 20 years later as a person who's dedicated most of my last seven years anyway to trying to help the theater community um, just as an act of kindness. Um, it is all volunteer, it's, that's what kind of makes it special. Um, I hope that's an example that can inspire other people um, as they try to get through this darkness, because this is this is as bad as it's going to as it's going to ever get. And I think when people start to get inside their own heads and they really suffer with the darkness, you know, it's more important than ever to to just reconnect with people such as with your podcast and things like that. And sometimes like what we're trying to do with the kindness fund is just giving people money. You know, because we can to help them with their living expenses, but just as a as a kind of like a little, you know, bouquet, we we ask them to do an act of kindness in return. And we ask we think that we're doing it just as much for their good as we are for the person who receives that act of kindness. Because I think right now, more than ever, if we can just keep reminding each other of our common humanity and try to just get through this. People are being so hard on, e- on themselves and saying, Oh, I'm not writing my great American play. I'm not doing any shows. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. And it's the thing I keep trying to repeat to people is it's okay. If the best you can do right now is getting by that's winning. That is winning right now. It's, it's getting by. You're not, the world is not passing you by as an artist because you're not doing anything right now. Nothing is going on right now. And I know mentally that's a very hard thing to accept, but um, what can we do? We can, be, we can be good to each other, you know? We can touch base with each other, we can help each other out. And that's the, what the whole Denver Actors Fund has been about from the very beginning. And I hope that that's the legacy that that leaves. I hope, I hope when my time comes that that's my ghost light. Absolutely. I,
0: I have no doubt in that. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, the guest has been John Moore, the, one of the preeminent voices um, of my career and hopefully yours as well. He's more than just a critic. He's a talented writer and man. Um, I want to thank everything, thank him for everything he's done for artists across the state, with the Denver's Actors Fund. If you have the moment and the ability to, please consider giving tonight as soon as you hear this podcast. Um, it's, be, it will be well received and it's needed. Um, ladies and gentlemen, please be brave. We will get through this together. I guarantee you that. And without further ado, it's War by the Hypnotic Brass Ensembles taking us away. Dan, do the damn thing. Uh-huh.
1: Is Dan still awake? <laughs> like, how did
0: you get into theater journalism? This is where I first knew you from, and then we'll talk about that whole maturation process of your theater. Actually, that is
1: that that is not how you first knew me from, and you know that.
0: Oh, that's right. That's right. The Downtown YMCA.
1: We have some. We have we have a special past.
0: We do have a special past. The, the downtown YMCA has come up on multiple occasions on this podcast it was with Cajardo, Lindsay, and Jim. Hunt. I was such—I was so unhip at that
1: time. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything.
0: And like the only reason why Cajardo became a buddy is because he had just won the Henry for. Uh,
1: Joe Turner's come and gone.
0: That's Thank you. Joe Turner's come and gone. I <laughs> snuck up on him at the gym, and I was like, you just won a Henry Award. Those matter here in town. How do I get on your level?
1: Okay, when I walked into the YMCA, though, you acted like I was a pretty big deal because I was theater critic at the Denver Post, and I feel like now you're telling me you treated everybody that way.
0: You guys, this shit is gold. Can we start the podcast? <laughs> We're recording it. We're recording it. We can just throw it in at the end. Seriously, <laughs> throw it in at the end. Okay. Well after after the music pans out if people are listening still, Mm -hmm. hopefully they will be. They'll they'll wanna like, oh, this is the preamble.